valuable and it cannot be held by physical hands, it's probably worth holding on to. This is Immaterial Treasures. I'm your host, Dan Fee Parker. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to uh, Immaterial Treasures. Today, I have a guest um, who is very dear and home to me. She's a family member, niece, and her name is Rebecca Thompson. Rebecca Thompson is a current student uh, at Harvard, going into her third year, uh, currently studying sociology, correct, Rebecca? Yeah. Um, yeah. Before we get started, I, wanted, I just want to commend Rebecca because she's a very humble person. Uh, everything she does, she doesn't communicate to anybody. We just end up finding out that she's doing whatever she's doing. So a prime example of that is when I went to her high school graduation, I had no idea that she was the valedictorian. So I got there and I looked at the program and I was like looking at the program. I looked at the valedictorian. I was like, wait, Rebecca's a valedictorian? And my sisters and everybody was like, yeah. And I was like, what? How come nobody told me? She didn't tell me. She never tells anybody when she's succeeding. Um, so I'm really happy to have her today on the on the show. And we're going to be talking today about um, systemic racism, a term that's been circulating in the social media world. Most of the people that I find that have issues understanding this term are usually the white moderate. Uh, so today my aim is to critically look at the term and to define is systemic racism a myth or is it a reality? On just so the listener knows, I'm not trying to prove that it's uh it's it's false because I believe that it exists. I'm just trying to frame the conversation in such a way that helps the listener and those who may have foggy ideas about it walk away with uh with a clear idea. And Rebecca is here to aid us in that. Um, as she has uh, currently been studying these things. And you're a current sociology major, right? Yes, I am. I'm a sociology major with a secondary in African-American studies. All right. So this will be great. So before we um, yeah. we start, why did you uh, venture? Because I know before you went, to, you went to Harvard, you were thinking about law, um, doing law, yeah. and then you ventured into sociology. What was the main reason for doing that? Well, um, as an undergrad at Harvard, there's actually no law major. So most people who go into uh, law school tend to um, either take sociology, they'll do government, or a major there called history and literature. So um, I could still go to law school under this major, but I'm actually not looking towards going to law school at this moment. I think I'm going to um, pursue a PhD in sociology and then try to become a professor. That's the that's the vision right now. But yeah, there's no there's no major there's no law major as an undergrad at Harvard. Oh, so okay, makes sense. That's, that's yeah. Yeah, that's good. And um, what are your current emotional you know interpretations of everything that's going on? Emotional and just critical interpretations of everything that's happening in the culture right now with regards to race. Emotional, it's been very rough for the last, I think, is it four weeks now? It's been a lot of looking at the news and like being disgusted by what I see. It's been a lot of conversations with like classmates and friends and just like feeling so um, hopeless in this situation, but also very hopeful because 
it seems that this moment has like incited a lot of um, discussions and conversations about race. Um, And it's, it's also been a moment where we've also been just radically reimagining what life can be like in the United States going forward. And when I, when I, when I say radical, I mean like we're talking about, you know, abolishing the police and, and abolishing like the prison industrial complex and things like that, which are um, ideas that people are not ready to discuss or ready to even think about. So it's a hopeful moment, but it's also just very disheartening. It's also disheartening because, you know, we have a situation where a man was literally murdered by the police and there was righteous civic uproar about it. And the police have been responding with the same violence that we are protesting against. And um, the police have just been, and, and the police are also still murdering people. Rayshard Brooks was, was murdered last Friday, I believe. I'm not, I'm not sure of the actual date, but it seems that he was murdered um, a week ago. And he was murdered in a hot spot for tensions between police and um, civilians, which is Atlanta. So we've been seeing the police be extremely brutal with civilians in Atlanta, and then they go on and murder another person. So, yeah, it's just when we see things like that, and when I say we, I mean Black people, when we see things like that on TV over and over again, it's just like, when is it going to stop? It doesn't seem like it's going to stop. And then we start like just thinking about ways to, you know, uproot this system. Like, like we're going to talk about systemic racism. We're going to, we're, we're thinking about ways to just fully change the way that this, this country operates. So that's where I've been right now. And I'm, and I'm reading a lot on abolition and um, organizing. So yeah. Right. So one thing I'm going to, I'm going to suspend the topic of uh, abolishing the police officers for a, at the end of this podcast. I'll, try, mm-hmm. I'll revisit that. Right. But I want to get right into it and I want to address, or perhaps I want you to define systemic racism by what it's not to begin with before you define mm-hmm. what it is. So if you were to define mm-hmm. systemic racism by what it's not, what would you say? Mm-hmm. I would definitely say that systemic racism is definitely not the individual acts of racism that we see filmed on camera. Right. So most of the time, and I'll, and I'll speak from a, I guess, Gen Z, Gen Z perspective of being on Twitter all the time. You know, we see, we call them Karens. We see Karens in the grocery store, like, you know, telling people to go back to their country or just being very rude, calling the police on um, black people who are literally minding their business. Um, and we see that a lot. It's probably like a, a video every week that'll go viral and then the next week it's another one. But I wouldn't even define systemic racism by those individual acts. Um, mm-hmm. Because most of the time you'll have black people who are living in extremely segregated areas where they don't have in- interactions with white people like that. Where they're, they're not, you know, interacting with white people in in grocery stores or in their neighborhoods because they don't live in proximity to white people. So you actually have black people who don't have these individual encounters. Um, But they will say that they have been impacted by systemic racism in another way by, you know, the poverty Mm -hmm. that they may see in their neighborhoods, right? So 
I would I would primarily say that it's not the individual acts of racism that are so outraging. Like, I wouldn't even say, this might come as a shock, but I wouldn't even say George Floyd's individual murder is something that you can point at and say, this is systemic racism, because mm-hmm. that's an individual act. Right. That's an individual act. But when you look at policing as a whole, then you can start talking about like systemic racism. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk about individual acts racism as systemic racism. It's interesting you say that because uh, I think uh, most of the, the white individuals I've spoken to have a hard time wrapping their mind around the concept of systemic racism because they do, um, they do see it as sometimes these individual acts or a racist is someone that they can point outside of themselves. Somebody who would say mm-hmm. a racial slur um, because right. most white individuals believe that we live in a post racial era after the civil rights movement, which is unfortunate right. because um, most scholars say that racism is highly adaptive. So it's not, it's, it doesn't just like cease to exist because we uh, we've now as uh Martin Luther King so famously said that he he appealed to the character of an individual being judged rather than the color of their skin. So people adopted that and said, yeah, yeah, we're going to live by that. And so the laws of the land are not necessarily racist themselves. So th- before I go on, I had a friend who was having a hard time grasping what I was trying to say. So he was reading and he was um, interacting with different things online. And he said the definitions were somewhat foggy for him because he's, he heard one person define system, systemic racism as systems that are systems that are in place that make the person racist, like it forces them to be racist. So they may be in, uh, in and of themselves, they may be like anti-racist. They may not be racist, but the system that's in place forces them to be racist. So one of this is the Real Estate Act, where um, uh, I forget when it was, but they, they essentially said that you couldn't sell to black folks in this white, specifically white neighborhood. So that's a system that's in place that forces the real estate agent, who may not be racist, to be racist. Right. And then he right. said he heard other definitions in which um, the system itself isn't outright, the policies aren't right, aren't right, like explicitly racist. But the people who mm-hmm. enact those policies and live by those that are in places of power have racial biases. Mm-hmm. So then they operate mm-hmm. through racist bi- racial lenses and suppress mm-hmm. or deny equal opportunity for people of color. Uh, yeah. So now that I, I've kind of like introduced that, I kind of want to know what, what, how would you define systemic racism? Whew. Well, um, I did my homework, <laughs> and so I, I I looked up the definition of what a system is. So the Oxford Dictionary defines a system as a set of principles or procedures according to which something is done, an organized scheme or method. Mm-hmm. And in their book, Black Power, Stokely Carmichael and Charles B. Hamilton define the word system as the entire American complex of basic institutions, values, and beliefs. Mm. So they they go on to say that structures, um, by which they mean political parties, interest groups, bureaucratic administrations, the police, those are subsets of the American system. Mm. So what we what we need to do is we need to first recognize that the system itself is covert at its very core. Because a system is intangible. A system functions on ideas and beliefs. Right. Um, the structures that are subsets of systems are tangible and real. We see the police officers in the street 
um, people vote for a Democrat or a Republican, you know, into office every four years. So these are the real things that we see that are subsets of the American system of ideas and beliefs. Mm. So when we're talking about systemic racism, we're talking about like the racist ideas and beliefs that are interwoven into the fabric of the American psyche. Like we're talking about centuries of white Americans actually believing that black people are just inferior to them because they are black. And we're also talking about black people hearing they are inferior over and over again and actually starting to internalize that and believe it and have, I would say, I would say like a self-loathing or a hatred for themselves because of what, you know, they're hearing about themselves over and over again. Right. We're talking about the idea that when you hear like the word American, you're more likely to picture a white person's face than you are to picture a black person's face. Mm. So like these are the sets of ideas that truly form the American system. So then when we look at structures, which are subsets of the American system, we see systemic racist ideologies, you know, seeping into these organizations. And um, this is why we see like policing as a structure being inherently racist because things like broken window policing and stop and frisk tend to disproportionately target poor and black, poor black and brown people because, you know, there's the idea that they're more prone to criminality. And there's literally, you know, been studies that have been done to say, oh, black people are more prone to commit crime. So you have like that type of ideology seeping into how we, um, or how the policing system is run. You see the two-party democratic system of government being inherently racist as well. Because more often than not, you know, the types of black people who are elected to positions of power here in this country come from wealthy backgrounds or they have had access to other powerful white structures like Ivy League schools, like the one that I attend. So this is an indication to me that, you know, to be successful in black in America, you probably have gone through extensive acculturation in white spaces. So it's not enough to succeed by just being black. You can be black you have to assimilate and tone down that blackness in certain spaces. So that is like inherently racist. And it goes to show that like, when we're talking about like systems, we're talking about ideologies that have, you know, been passed down generation after generation, but also they have formed um, how structures in the United States also operate. So, when you're talking about a structure that is getting its, you know, legitimacy from a system that is illegitimate because it's racist, Mm -hmm. you know, you have illegitimate structures like policing, which are disproportionately targeting black and brown people. Um, You have systems like the democratic and Republican system where you feel like where, where if you ask um, an average black person, you will say that no, this Democrat doesn't actually represent the ideals that I have, or this Republican doesn't actually represent the ideals that I have because those people have been socialized in spaces that are not commonly black. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, that's And when you say those leaders, you're referring to people that are black in those spaces. Right, right. So um, you'll have people like, let's say, um, Barack Obama, right, who um, is commonly used as an example of how far we've come. And and it's true. Um, It's definitely significant that, you know, we've had a black president. But when you think about 
how he even became president. Um, I don't think a lot of people think about where um, so much of the money comes from to become a president in the first place or to just become like a political candidate. You know, I looked up, I looked up um, who contributed to Barack Obama's campaign in 2012 and you have huge corporations like Microsoft and Google and you have like schools like uh, University of California, Harvard University, Stanford University. And these are all like elite white institutions, elite right. white structures backing him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you have to realize that it's not, it's not the fact that, oh my goodness, so many black people came out to vote for Barack Obama. It's why are you even seeing Barack Obama as your option in the first place? Right. You have had elite white structures saying, okay, you know what? Yeah, let's, let's support this black president, you know, which is, which is also an indication of progress because you do have, you know, white powerful institutions saying that, yes, we can put our, our money and our support behind somebody who's black. But then if you think about it in the grand scheme of things, you have to realize that Barack Obama might not have been able to succeed without their support, which right. is inherently racist. Right. So um, that's, that's the type of things that we're talking about when we're talking about systemic racism. It's interesting you bring that up because uh, I've had, uh, I've read and I've seen and I've heard a lot of people use, they point to figures like Barack Obama or even the Morgan Freemans and these other individuals that have been successful, these exceptional black folks. And they say that these guys are markers of racial progress and that this thing that Mm -hmm. you're talking about, systemic racism, is a farce because if they were in place, these guys would have not never gotten to where they're at. But in the book right. that you uh, you just cited, um, Black Power, uh, Carmichael makes an interesting right. uh, observance where he says he connects uh, the fact that these black individuals in these places of power don't actually uh, protect or even flourish the 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 ideas of the black community because right. they're under authority. And then he he goes right. back to uh, colonialism in Africa and how this has a longer uh, history of colonizers um who had indirect rule so by indirect rule they would rule through uh african chiefs uh so right. the 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 people in in the villages or whatever th- think the chiefs are in control but they're actually under order right, right? could you expound on that a bit like on how that's affecting us today and uh, that there's a deeper message that even these individuals that are in these places of power don't actually operate freely. Right. I mean, you have to remember, like, I, I, I think of um, Kamala Harris, who was a Democratic uh, presidential nominee until she dropped out a few months ago. And, I mean, you have this black woman who is, <laughs> they called her the top cop of California, where she was the prosecutor. I think she was she was the lead prosecutor in in California, and her job was literally to send criminals to jail. That is that is the duty that she you know that she she upheld in that position. So you have people like Kamala Harris who were sending so many black people to jail because of like drug crimes and 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 things like that. You know you have to realize that these people are operating under their their jobs basically so even if you know you're a black person in the position of power your allegiance actually lies to your role so you if you have to if you have to put people in jail to be to be good at your job that's what you have to do 
And and then you think about like politicians, black politicians who are supposed to represent black people. Most of the time when they get into these these positions, you see that they they can't give as much as they're expected to give to the black community. Mm. They get into positions and they they propose, you know, legislation that that might be good for a select few black people, but in the grand scheme of things, they're not really successful legislation that works for the benefit of the whole. Um, and, and they're actually operating within the limits of their role. You can't, you can't really like expect them to, to, to provide, you know, huge results for black people. Because like I said, these systems are already in place so that black people, you know, cannot reap the benefits of whatever system that they, they're being oppressed by. So you have um, black people in power who, who will like talk a big game about, oh, I'm doing this for the community. But then when they get into those positions, you realize that the community has, is, is still oppressed. The community is still impoverished. And, you know, um, they're not producing the results that they said they would or um, the black people that voted for them expected them to. Do you think this is a matter of um, of having to appease those whom they're working under? Um, because it seems to be right. like a real uncomfortability, not just with white people, even with some black people, when a black person is pro-black. Mm, yes. And I mean, because pro-black is dangerous in some people's eyes. You know, pro-black goes against the very core of what this nation stands for sometimes. Right. When you think of Colin Kaepernick kneeling, right? Right. And you have so many people, so many angry people at him. He he's he's literally kneeling because he's protesting police brutality. And I and I saw a phrase somewhere it's like America is so racist that when people are protesting racism they think that they're protesting against America. Mm. Like you literally have Colin, you know, kneeling against police brutality, and people are are saying it's about the flag and it's about his disrespect towards veterans, and it's and it's not that at all. Right. So, yes, when you think about when you when you when somebody is pro black and and fighting for black people, it, it seems like you're fighting against white America and the establishment, and and that's threatening because white America and the establishment has worked for white people and has left them very comfortable mm-hmm. and um has perpetuated a lifestyle for them that works for them, that builds wealth and that is able to send their kids to good schools and live in safe neighborhoods. You know, so obviously when you're protesting against things that might radically change how this country is set up and when this country is set up to work for you, you fear that. And that's threatening to you. Right. So, yeah. Um, It's interesting you brought up about just the notion of uh, these, uh, black folks in influential areas working in those spaces to kind of almost provide for their family and those that surround them. Right. So there's in that same book, black power, Johnny Williams tells, uh, I think in this is my country too, is, um, he tells a story from an interview that he tried to do in 1963 with a black professor, uh, who subsequently told him that governor Wallace pays his salary and he has nothing to say to him. Mm. So then he walked away mm-hmm. and that goes to mm-hmm. show that like, some of these black folks that get into these places of influence and, and wealth know mm-hmm. that if they speak in certain ways, they might mm-hmm. jeopardize the comfort that they've created for their immediate family, 
their extended family yeah. and those that may be in their sphere of like community. Yeah. And it's like, I, yeah. I can't speak freely because I might lose all that and I'm not comfortable with that because a lot of people are, wait, are looking to me for this. So I guess the deeper question mm -hmm. is like, I know power is very much tied to wealth. And yeah. it seems almost hopeless because most of the wealth in Western world is in the hands of white people. Right. Um, so then it's, it shows like how, how can a black person who, uh, who comes up to a place of prominence protect themselves, even protect their psychology um, from working for the white man, knowing that they don't come there on their own power like you cited with Obama. They come there with the backing of white money and white power. In fact, there's a stat that says that 10 of the rich, 10, 10 of the richest Americans are hundred percent white and seven of them are among the 10 richest in the world. Mm. That's, that's a massive stat. It's a massive stat. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I like, can you like pretty much talk a, a little bit about how the psychology and how that even happens for black individuals who arise and, and even for yourself, do you fear because you're someone that will be in spaces of influence and do you fear that your your mentality may be, as uh, the longer you stay in these white spaces, it may be uh, compromised and that you may become one of these individuals who come up to places of power and just not that you intentionally avoid the needs of the community, the black community, but then you're just mm -hmm. tied like these other folks. Right. Um, that's a very good question. And actually, it's something that I have been very conscious of um, in the last year. I have realized that a lot of what's going on right now is also a direct outrage against capitalism as well. Right. Um, so when you think about who holds the money and how you're supposed to succeed in this country, you do realize that at some point you might have to compromise your blackness for a couple of dollars. And yeah, I, 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 remember, I remember last year thinking to myself, like, I was able to, you know, get accepted to Harvard and be in this space from a very low income background. Right. And I think it's, it, I think it's, it's I, important to also note that you didn't get there by affirmative action. <laughs> you earned your way right. there. <laughs> um, let's be very clear. Yeah. Let's be very clear. I did not. I did not. But I realized that I, I was able to get into the space um, from a low-income background, and I and I have lived a very comfortable life. And for me, I, I kind of realized, I was like, do I even want to be wealthy when I grow up? Like, what will I have to lose to become wealthy? Mm -hmm. um, because when you're in white spaces like, like Harvard, you see how, like, you will see how money is just like like water to some people and how it kind of makes them very i don't know the word for it but it's like they don't they they're very they're kind of oblivious to to certain struggles that i might have faced right um and when you're thinking about like being black in this space and 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 then like you know, the proximity that, that white people have to wealth, it's like, if I want to be proximate to wealth, will I have to also be proximate to whiteness? And what will I have to lose to be proximate to that wealth? What parts of myself do I have to tone down or, or completely hide 
just to just to be in a place where I can access that wealth. But this movement that's going on right now is also about redistributing wealth, getting wealth out of systems that actively oppress Black people and reinvesting that wealth into community programs and education that will actually ultimately benefit the community, the Black communities that are so impoverished. So, I mean... It's a really good question. I, I think I think it's very clear to me that like if you want to make it, you know, the American dream type thing, if you want to make it in America, you have to, you know, enter spaces that seem foreign to you as a black person and and actually do well in those spaces as well. And to do well in those spaces you have to know the language that they're using and be able to and, and be able to um, converse and be able to understand what whatever they're talking about, you know, is like you have to be able to fit in. Right. Um, and I've been in spaces like that at school and have been so uncomfortable, so uncomfortable that I have had to leave and like never come back. And, and I just felt like I was like losing parts of myself in those spaces because they were so dominated by wealth and whiteness, not like independent of each other but like intertwined with each other wealth and whiteness as one right um so so yeah that's that's how i feel about about that that even sounds oppressive wealth and whiteness intertwined yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's, it, it's really one it becomes one thing like especially when you're when you're at school and you and you just think of like who is wealthy on campus you automatically think of you know the the white sons and daughters of legacies and yeah so wow that's interesting and it's it's um it's almost like uh the the black individual in america has been forced to almost assimilate to get ahead and um and the ones who choose not to assimilate Mm -hmm. as intellectual or as powerful as they may be can only get so far and in fact they could be relegated to just being labeled as dangerous. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I look, I sometimes I, I, um, when I'm talking about like certain white spaces on campus, I won't name names, but I have been in certain spaces and, and I fully rejected those spaces. And then I, I've, I have felt like I've chosen not to be in those spaces. I'm lagging behind on opportunities of some sort, or right. I am, I am not being, able to to network in the same way that my peers um, might be able to network. Mm. I mean, and this is not like classroom spaces. It's like social spaces, which are like a whole different type of monster themselves. Because, you know, I was talking to somebody today actually about what makes Harvard so different than any other school um, or what makes the Ivy League so different from other schools in the United States. And I said, it's really just the networking opportunities that are at these schools, right? Mm. And when I constantly reject um, these spaces because they, they feel so foreign to who I am and who I embody, and when I, like, when I continually say, no, I don't want to go to this event because I just don't feel like I'll be represented by who people are going to be looking at, you know, and mm-hmm. who people are going to be wanting to speak to, there are times when I'm just like, what am I doing here? Because if I'm not, if I, if I'm at Harvard and I'm not taking advantage of the networking that 
makes this school what it is. Because at the end of the day, it's just it's just the name and who att- who's attracted to that name and who who um who that name attracts as well. If I'm not taking advantage of that, then why am I here? And then I realized, like, I feel like I'm also here to challenge the ideas that you have to operate in those spaces to truly succeed in life. So, yeah, sometimes it's hard. I'm like, you know, if I'm not going to this to this event or if I'm not going to this this building, you know, this specific building on campus, like, am I missing out on an opportunity of a lifetime? But I've also realize that I have found spaces at Harvard that seem that are so true to to who I am and what I want to do in my life and interestingly those spaces take me out of Harvard so I I'll give an example I am hoping to um dedicate most of my my life's work to helping returning citizens and returning citizens are basically people who are transitioning out of prison Mm. And I am, I am in a program at school that takes us to prisons in Boston, in, in, in Boston and, and, you know, the greater Boston area. And, you know, I, I went to a few prisons this semester and tutored people and was in conversation with people about, you know, uh, we, we talked about masculinity and, and gender and, that is where I felt my calling and that's where I felt most comfortable. Right. So I was actually not on campus and, and not in that, you know, ivory tower, but I got that opportunity from, from the school for sure. But, you know, the work that I was dedicated to actually turned out to be 20 minutes away from campus. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I feel like even though, um, at times, I don't. I don't really feel like I fit in in certain spaces on campus. There are always opportunities to meet people who also feel like me and are doing that work to, to you know, get involved in the community in, in different ways um, and have Harvard have Harvard's name behind it, but also you know, actually, I guess, making a real impact. Um, yeah. As so, you as you speak, that's what I would say. As you speak, I, I, and I think you're like, you asked the questions, um, this introspective question of yourself, like, what am I doing here if I'm not taking opportunities, taking advantage of the opportunities that to network? In one sense, I feel like um, you're probably there. Well, you are fulfilling the, the standard that black folks uh, put on themselves and even our parents put on themselves that you have to be exceptional. You have to be excellent to be regarded, to be mm-hmm. listened to. Mm-hmm. So even mm-hmm. being at Harvard and graduating Harvard, even if you don't get those networks because of its uh, exclusivity um, to certain people right. faces, um, when you leave, you have a badge that speaks in most places, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And, and it's unfortunate that we need, black folks need badges to be heard. Yeah, you know yes. that uh, we have to show it's it's almost it's it's gonna you yes. go back into the history like you have to show your uh, freedom papers. Yeah, um, uh, I, I mean, go ahead. That's a that's a great point that you bring up because um, you know when there was a there was a case that is that went that went viral on Twitter where I where I stay <laughs> um, a couple or I'd be like four weeks ago and it's a it's a very common story about Amy Cooper who, um, 
you know, got caught that she called, she wanted to call the cops on a man called Christian Cooper because he told her to put her dog on a leash and she got very upset and called the cops and said, Oh, there's an African American man that is, you know, threatening me. Right. And the discourse on Twitter was so annoying because it was like, look at Christian Cooper. He's a Harvard grad. Like he is an exceptional black person. Um, Mm. why did Amy Cooper feel like she had the, had the nerve to call the police on him. Look at look at who Christian Cooper is. Like, as if he would have warranted or as if he would have been worthy of Amy Cooper's reaction if he wasn't a Harvard grad, right? Right. right. So it's like, it's like, at, at t- <laughs> the badge is not even, well, well, in that case, you can see how the badge doesn't work in most spaces, but... The badge can also be very dangerous to black people who don't have that badge, who don't have the luxury of being able to even access that badge, right? Right. Because then you have cases like like, um, Ahmaud Arbery and and so many countless black people who don't have access to these elite institutions who are crucified in the media every time they're killed, right? They will dig up old arrest reports they will dig up all of these things for Ahmad Arbery. They said he was mentally ill and he was not on his medications. That was absurd as if any of those things matter in the moment that they have been killed by racist people. Right. So the badge that, that people like me will be able to, you know, wear in a couple of years can prove to be actually harmful to black people who aren't given the same opportunities because it's like, well, if you don't have the badge, then, you get what's coming to you, right, I think, right. which is horrific. And you know right? what? I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted you to touch on the criminalization of black bodies. Like, Because I've seen this online, even from Christian people, which is really grievous to right. me, where they bring up a whole history of this person's criminal background. It's almost as if, and there's always, it's prefaced by, well, no, no, I'm not saying that they deserve to die. But did you know that he did right. this, 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 and that when he was alive right. or this and that? And they did that for um, George Floyd as well. And I wanted you to touch on yes. the historicity of that kind of um, blame game. That's very American. Because well, I think last time we talked about, you brought up some of the reasons people would give for people being lynched and yeah, why white people were able to, you know, be right. violent towards black bodies. So, um, yeah, so you have um, Ida B. Wells who um, writes a book on lynching. The name is called The Red Record. Hmm. And in this book, she basically discusses all of the historical reasons for why um, black people were lynched following Reconstruction, I believe. And um, the first reason that they gave was we have to, we being white people, we have to kill black people because they are going to incite race riots in America. Hmm. So they were, and, and, and when you think about the language of that, that statement, it says we are going to kill black people because they are going to incite race, race riots, right? Right. When you think about, I'm just going to go on a tangent for real, real quick. When you think about policing and, you know, preventative, um, the preventative principle that underlines policing. Policing operates under the, the assumption that they are go- police are going to uh, prevent crime. Mm-hmm. So we're going to patrol the streets so that we, our, our bodies will prevent crime from happening in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. So when you think about that, in that historical context of white people saying we are going to kill black people because they are going to incite race riots, you know, Mm. 
it puts the the idea of policing in perspective in in, in that perspective. Right. But um, so 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 yes, the, the the first reason was we're killing black people because they're going to incite race riots. When white people saw that black people were not in fact inciting race riots, they had to move on to another excuse or another justification for their um, horrific murders of black people. The next one was we have to kill black people so that they can't vote in this country. So lynching was a form of disenfranchisement. Hmm. So you have um, white people going out and stopping black people from voting by murdering them. Um, Well, you know, that practice scared black people enough to stop voting because they didn't want to get murdered. So, you know, then you have a whole period of black people not voting and white people are still lynching black people. So then the next excuse that they use, which was kind of like set in stone um, and, and, and lasted for a few years was the idea that we are murdering black people because they are raping white women and they are, um, yeah, they're assaulting white women. So we have to murder them. They have to pay for what they have done, which is when, when you think of lynching, that's the main excuse that you, that you normally think of when you think of why black people were lynched um, in the South right. because they were, or black people were allegedly um, raping white women. So when you have, when you have a historical narrative of black people being criminalized after the fact, you know, we killed him because he did this, not even proving that he did this. Most times white women were lying or they were consensual relationships that were found out and, you know, they, they just could not have that. So they had to murder the black um, man because he had, you know, race mixed. And that was just inherently wrong. So you have a historical example of black people just being criminalized after the fact for things that are not inherently criminal and things that are inherently lies. You have the case of Emmett Till, who everybody knows about, who incited the civil rights movement in the 60s. And you also have the case of why the Tulsa race massacre actually occurred it, it stemmed from an allegation of a white woman that a black man had assaulted her in an elevator. Right. So, I mean, I don't believe he was murdered. I'm not 100% sure. I think he was not lynched, but to exact their revenge, you know, they bombed Black Wall Street. They right. bombed this prominent black town because of an allegation that a white woman had been assaulted by a black man. So then... This idea that black people are criminalized, you know, after they are murdered is not is not anything new. And we see that it's happening because, you know, white people have to find a justification for the violence that they commit against black people. Right. And and their justification also their justification doesn't seem to always align with like the violence that they perpetuate does not match the violence does not always match the violence that they say the black person in question committed. So I'm thinking of Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman, right? Right. He was murdered by Zimmerman, but then you have people calling him a thug after he's been murdered. Hmm. You have George Floyd who's murdered, 
this year. And then you see things like, well, he was giving them a counterfeit $20 bill. So murder and a counterfeit $20 bill are on the same car now. And then you have Ahmaud Arbery, who was murdered and then called the N-word after he was murdered, immediately after he was murdered. They just found it on camera where the person who murdered him calls him the N-word after he has shot him, right? Mm -hmm. And then you hear the defense at the preliminary hearing say, well, he was off his meds and he had a history of men and mental illness. So now you have white people justify or, or racist, racist people justifying their senseless murders of black people with things that just don't add up, things that don't even equate to murder. Right. But it's enough, but it's actually enough for, um, for racist people to, to be like, well, yeah, he deserved it. It's justified. Or it's enough for me to, it, it's significant enough for me to even mention in the discourse about the justification of his death. Right. I'm going to bring up the fact that it was a $20 fake, a fake $20 bill, or, you know, he, he was arrested, you know, in so-and-so, or he was caught shoplifting for whatever reason, you know? So it's like, it's disheartening, but it's nothing new. Right. Because, There's a history you know, behind contextualize it. it. Yeah. We contextualized it. And it's, and it's actually interesting that it's interesting that, the the violence that you know black people were allegedly committing towards white women it has you know the violence has just not been that that justification has not been kept up with in 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 recent years like in in contemporary time like you have justifications like the one I was talking about where like it's a twenty dollar fake or or he was shoplifting like that's not that those are not violent crimes but they're still being used to justify the murders of black people which just goes to show that, you know, racist people will use whatever they can to, to criminalize black people, despite the fact that anything that a black person might have done in their past has nothing to do with them warranting or being worthy of death right. in the moment that they were killed. Right. Yeah, that's, right. Uh, yeah, the, the historicity behind those allegations and those accusations that are constantly brought up makes me makes me finally come to terms with the fact that, yeah, this isn't new and it's a repetitive yeah. accusation that keeps coming. So to, right. uh, to round this up, I, I wanted to ask, so in what ways do we still see systemic racism operative within society? And what, what has to be done for black people to trust the system to work for them as well, equally? Mm. Well, I have gotten to a point in my understanding of systemic racism where I just don't think that the system as it stands will ever work for Black people as a whole and and other minority groups, racial minority groups in this country. Because when you think of how the system was developed, and, when I, and remember, when I say system, I, I, I say ideologies and beliefs that have been passed down and also have been, um, it has infiltrated the way that structures work in this country. Right. Um, you know, my, I was talking with a friend a couple of weeks ago and he was like, this all can be boiled down to one thing and, and respect. If black people are not respected in this country, then we've already lost. And, right. and I, and I, and I realized that he was totally correct. Like, 
a system, if a system is the way that people think, and if people think that black people don't deserve to be respected, then then we've lost. Do you um, think? Do you think our lack that's, of that's a very bleak? <laughs> do you think our lack of respect comes from our um, lack of economic power? Because I, I can I can think of other um, groups like the Jewish group who are very financially well off. You know, mm-hmm. nobody messes with them. I mean, unless you're anti-Semite, which everybody condemns you for if you're caught doing that. Mm-hmm. And Asian community, they usually do well for themselves. So there's these minority groups who are who have some form of economic power, but it seems like Black folks okay. don't have that. And so we are often, you know, the subjects of hate, violence, uh, because we can't really do anything. Right. right. Or so it seems. Um. I do think that that does play a hand in it. Now that I think about it, it probably definitely does play a hand in um, the respect that we're given or the respect that, or the lack thereof. But the funny thing about the system is, well, to get, to get to a place where we all will, you know, be given access to economic wealth and opportunity, we, we're, it's either we all compromise our blackness to to appease like white structures that will hand out the money to us or we completely like uproot that just because like, the thing is like if you're going to succeed in a system that I don't I just don't see a, a, a scenario where you succeed in a system that is fundamentally um, built against you right like I just don't see that being possible and that's why you know, the system needs to be targeted. But the thing is, like, how do you target ideologies? And how do you how do you work to unlearn the things that have been passed down over generations and have really formed how how we how we operate in this country and how we think about ourselves in this country, right? Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, and, and then and the thing is like People are turning to, you know, the structures that are in place and saying, okay, let's fix these structures because they are racist, right? But can you give me is, one, let's talk about one structure that we can inhi- we can point to as like, yeah, this is inherently racist. So I'll just say policing because that's what's on my mind right now, mm-hmm. right? Policing is inherently a structure that is racist. And I, and I brought up the preventative principle that operates under the logic that right. we are going to um, police so that we prevent crime from happening, right? And then when you read um, books like The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, right? Mm-hmm. And you and you hear about things like broken window policing, where there's the idea that if there's a car that is, if, if, if there's a car window that has been broken, the car is more susceptible to vandalism and other types of crime. But if there is a car that is perfectly fine, it's, completely locked and there's no windows that are broken it's much less likely to be vandalized right, right so there's right. an idea that if if some crime has already been committed then more more crimes and, and much and much more dangerous crimes or violent crimes to be committed so police operate under the, that idea or that assumption that you know if we crack down on small crimes and use unnecessary force for small things like for example alton sterling who was selling cigarettes outside of, you know, on, on a corn box or something. If we crack down on things like that, that'll prevent, you know, that'll prevent people from committing crimes like that or crimes that are even worse, right? right. But, when you, but when you think about 
the the implicit biases that also function with that type of policing, you see that policing as a whole is inherently racist. Because if it's operating under that logic of let's prevent crime, but then you're looking towards black and brown communities, poor black and brown communities to find that crime that you're trying to prevent, then you're operating under racist logic. So now you have people that are saying, oh, well, let's reform the police and let's teach them inherent or implicit, let's let's give them implicit bias training and let's ban chokeholds. Right. Okay. But are you really getting at what the problem is, which is the inherent like functioning of police? Are you really getting at the respect issue? Right. And that's, that's what I'm coming back to the respect issue where police, Policing as a, as an entity and as an organization does not respect black and brown communities because that would go against the fundamental organization of the system of policing. So it doesn't really address the problems that make policing so dangerous to poor and black communities. Right. So um, that's why I'm like, okay, well... If you think about, so, so I'm reading Black Power by Sophie Carmichael and Charles B. Hamilton, and they're saying that, you know, we can't really expect structures that are getting their legitimacy from a system to change that system. So we can't expect policing to change, you know, our racist ideology because policing came from the racist ideology. You know right. what I'm saying? So we can't expect policing to, to work for black and brown people because it's getting its legitimacy from a system that does not respect black and brown um, people. So I don't know. I don't know. It's, a, it's kind of like a chicken and an egg thing. I don't know what we attack first. How do we, you know, the, the, the thing is we can, we can attack tangible things, which are the structures. We can, we can say, Hey, we need to get rid of this because it's not working for us. Right. But then when you think, but then you think about what's left and what's left is even worse. It's the system. It's the way that all of us think. It's the ideologies that are ingrained into white families and even the internalizations of unworthiness and inferiority that might be ingrained into black families too, right? right how right. do we how do we have a cultural revolution and totally change how we think about ourselves and and totally think of uh, change about who who we think is deserving respect, right? right? Right. And and how do we how do we work on that and and attack the system, which is fundamentally the problem in in this in this discussion? So you know, right now there's a lot of there's a lot of organization that's happening around getting rid of racist institutions and racist structures, and that is necessary for sure because that's urgent. You know, black people are dying because of this stuff, mm-hmm. but. Um, and, 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 and black kids are going to schools that are underfunded and, you know, are overcrowded because of, you know, systems that like something akin to redlining, but in the context of schooling, I think, I mean, uh, I went to a high school in Prince William County that, or well, well, Prince William County engaged in a practice that excluded poor and black kids from attending a new school that they were building in the area. So they drew boundaries to purposely exclude black kids from going to this arts 
and liberal arts high school that had like so many excellent programs and opportunities and they totally said, well, no, we're not letting black kids go there. Or actually, we'll let black kids go there, but they have to be from this really rich neighborhood in, in Prince William County. So, I mean, like, you have things like that in place that we're trying to fundamentally change. And those are structures that we need to, to urgently fix because they are impacting the way that, you know, black kids have access and opportunities in their life. But then we also have to have a conversation about how we attack a system right. that is allowing these structures to operate like that. And, you know, as you bring that up, I, I, I'm, I feel like there's probably listeners um, and I want to voice their question because I feel like most I can I can think objections would come from some of my white friends. Um, and part of that is that they there's a very nervous feeling about the topic of tearing down um, structures because white people start to think, wow, that's a very Marxist approach mm-hmm. be careful you know and especially mm-hmm. in the church there's like a sworn allegiance to capitalism because yes. uh, partly because it, it, it superficially presents uh you know um human liberties to um yeah. to wealth um but there's yeah. such a nervous com- like feeling when people start to talk about destroying structures because they they start to think mm-hmm. in a marxist like oh this is very marxist and we need to avoid that mm-hmm. let's dodge that at all costs mm-hmm. but then it's like Yes. If you want to dodge this, what's the alternative? Because these structures are still in place. Us not doing anything is just reestablishing mm-hmm. this oppre- oppression. Do you see what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So this is these I, are some of the things I'm, I'm like I'm asking. Like, so how do we rebuild or even tear down mm-hmm. these racist mm-hmm. systems? You know that are in place. That's a that's a great question, and I, you know, operating under an abolitionist framework, I've I've come to realize that abolition is one part about tearing down and Another part, which is probably the most important and the greatest part, is about building up. Um, because you, you don't just carry on a structure and say, okay, well, let's move on. Nothing, let's, let's not leave anything, like, let's leave nothing behind and let's just leave society to fend for itself. Like, no, we're talking about carrying down something to build something better. And before I go into, like, what that means, I, I really implore people to consider the idea that you know, things that work for the most oppressed group in societies, policies and, and, and things that are set in place that liberate the most oppressed group in society liberates everyone and is good for everyone. So if we tear down a system like policing, right, and in its place, invest in good schools, invest in programs that combat food insecurity, invest in programs that address mental health issues in in communities, invest in programs that build up affordable housing and, and ultimately invest in the community. You won't really need structures like police because the crime that being, well, and I say crime like in quotation marks, the crime that's being committed in these in these communities will 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 not need to be committed because you'll have a, a community that that is functioning for the benefit of of everyone. I mean, most of the time when you're looking at people who are going away for crimes and things like that, you, you know, they're coming from environments that have oppressed them in more ways than one, and they have 
you know, been denied access to to good schools. They've been denied access to affordable housing. They've been denied access to mental health resources that actually benefit them and, and address the concerns that they, you know, they're having psycho- psychologically and things like that. Right. So when you think about who is even like committing crime, and again, I say crime very tentatively because when you think about crime, you know, you, you could have, like, I, I'll go back to this, you could have called George Floyd a criminal because he was, you know, producing a fake 20, right? right? So crime is also, crime is also something that we have to interrogate too. Well, who, well, who is a criminal? Because I also watched a video of police officers pointing guns at an autistic child, right? Who doesn't even understand what's going on and for that reason is being, is resisting arrest, right? Which constitutes a crime. And you're labeling an autistic child as a criminal. So when you have to also think about, we have to also reimagine what we, what we think crime is right. and, and, and interrogate why certain things are crimes and who is being labeled a criminal when we make something a crime. So when we think about the things that, that will reduce crime, it is investing in these things that ultimately beneficial to the community. And, and yeah, abolition and, and tearing things down is, is, is not about, you know, leaving people in distress and leaving everybody to fend for themselves and, and let's just let the world go to hell. It's not like that. It's also about creating things that actually sustain safety and health in a community. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I just started thinking in this framework, like this year. So it's not, it's not easy to like adopt that framework, but it's also, not going to be easy if you don't read about it and if you are scared of it and because it's so scary and so radical you completely just push the idea away and don't do your research on it you know because if you if you go to most to most um sites that are talking about abolition there they they always say like it's not it's not about just tearing things down and, and 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 ruining everything it's it's most importantly about building things up and creating things that are good for everyone. And I will repeat this. The liberation of the most oppressed group in society is liberation for everyone. So if we're doing things that will ultimately liberate people who have been oppressed for centuries, it will also be your liberation. It, 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 your, your, your morality and your humanity is at stake as well. And, it will, and you will also benefit from the system, you know? People are scared to to reimagine things going forward and reimagine a society because, like I said earlier, the society has worked for some people. Why do I want to tear something down that has been working for me? Um, right. Why would I want to ruin that? Right. But, you know, there's a whole, whole, whole demographic of people who are suffering out of things that have worked for you. Right. Um, and that's, inherently inhumane and it's and it's not what we should be okay with um so as people yeah so to um to ask you another like twofold question uh i just want to clarify for the listeners um and for myself when you say abolish the police do you mean to completely get rid of them that's the first question and then the second question is okay so people can agree with you people that are listening i can agree with you you know yeah you know 
fighting and creating a world that brings up the oppressed in our society works for everybody and it's good we can all say yes and amen to that but then some people may may say okay that's it's a bit idealistic to think that we don't need the police officers at all because crime doesn't happen just in those communities there could be upper middle class people who have disagreements and someone decides to pull out a gun who's going to come mm-hmm. and and aid that mm-hmm. so i guess my yeah yeah, could you clarify that? What does abolition mean in in its totality? Is it is it another way of saying defund, or does it mean exactly what it's saying when you say that? It means when I when I think of abolishing, I think of it as exactly what it means as getting rid of the police. And I and I mean it's hard to it's hard to imagine a society without police. Because our generation and um, our parents' generation, and in some cases our, our grandparents' generation, all they all function as a, in a society that had police. But if you do your research, police did not always exist in society. And some people will say, well, since we've had police, there are things that have developed that in society, some type of crimes that have that have come out of crimes that have that have come into our, our society that require a police presence, right? right? But when you think about those crimes, you have to also realize that those crimes came because of the police. I mean, think about the war on drugs specifically, right? Where you have where you have drugs being basically put into poor black and brown communities and then you also have an increased presence of police in those communities to incarcerate the people who are partaking in this criminal activity that, you know, has been criminalized by the government, right? Mm -hmm. So when you think about, like, the things that are in place now that you say, well, we need police for this. We need police to stop these crimes. Well, the police kind of initiated or other structures initiated these crimes so that the police became legitimate, right? And, And the need for the police and the need for the police arose. I will say. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't have all the answers to these individual cases of like, okay, well, if somebody pulls a gun out, who do we call? But I do know that if policing is getting its legitimacy from an illegitimate source in the first place, which is a racist system, I don't see, see the benefit of keeping that system that actively oppresses poor black and brown people over and over again. I just don't see why we have to be okay with that. And I also don't see why we're not doing more to be creative and reimagine what we can do to prevent, I I don't want to say prevent crime, but what what we can do to de-escalate situations of violence in society. Because I'm just not comfortable with the idea that we leave policing in society when it has proven time and time again to oppress and murder people, you know, and and I might not have all the answers. I, I definitely know that the people who have been doing abolitionist work for years might have better answers than I will, but I, I just don't feel like we should be in a place where we're comfortable with seeing murder over and over again. And right. if, I mean, and defunding the police, um, while it is an integral first step, it, like I said, it does not address the 
the problem, which is at the root of everything, which is a lack of respect for black people, black mm-hmm. and brown people. Defunding the police will will not address the implicit biases that operate in, in policing. And implicit bias training has proven time and time again not to actually produce results that work for poor black and brown communities. So if we've put things in place that have tried to address these things and they haven't worked, then we need to start thinking about other things that we can do to keep communities safe. And that's why you get into um, reinvesting into the community and, and, and doing the work to actually attack the problem at the root. So, so that's, that's what I have to say about that. I mean, there's, there's, there are so many resources that, that are out there and that, and that have been, you know, curated so that people who have questions like that will have like a, a, a possible answer. I don't have all the answers. Um, cause I, I, like I said, I, I adopted like an abolitionist framework very, very recently. And sometimes it scares me too. So I'm just like, okay, well, you know, if, if something is happening to me, who do I call? But, you know, that's also, you know, that's also how the system is working. Like, if you, it, when you're thinking about things in that way, like, I need the police. That is what the system wants you to to believe and it, in it. And it's working. If you think that the police, people who are holding guns and who are allowed to commit violence against you or anybody in a, in the situation with you, if you think that that is your form of safety and that's who will protect you, then the system is working to make you believe that this this inherently racist structure will work for you. When it when it right. when at its core it, it, it doesn't or it doesn't work for people that look like you. Right. Um, and that's so, interesting because yeah. I just just to think about I mean, like I said, I, I it's kinda hard for me to wrap my hand around it. and you did mention a keyword. We need to think in creative ways, and I think you you have a steep hill on trying to convince people how to to abolish the police. Um, but I yeah. know that the very in the very infancy of police force is uh, is corrupt in the sense that police officers were were administered for uh, bringing back runaway slaves and patrolling slaves. Right. right? So that kind of right. ideology still remains. Um, and I guess I'm trying to think of like other countries that haven't got abolished um, police the police force but they've mm-hmm. defunded it they uh they they haven't militarized it they've um mm. but they're there as like symbols of like uh order and uh and authority and i even think about organized crime is still going to be around even if because mm-hmm. of because of the state of uh police presence in society uh when police go away they won't cease to exist necessarily i don't know that for a fact Um, but, and then I also think like, how do we bring criminals to a court of law if there is no cops to Mm -hmm. catch them? You know, like where, who would be, who would be representatives in society to bring people to justice Mm -hmm. or to, or to even bring about justice for somebody that has been wronged. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it is interesting to think about. Yeah. I mean, and then, but that also gets into a, a whole other discussion about, um, about justice in this country. And that, and that, that also, you know, leads the conversation about, well, is the justice that, that we have adopted in this American system where, where justice means 
catching the person who has um, wronged you and putting him behind bars for sometimes a lifetime or actually in some cases, you know, executing, you know, this person who has wronged you. We also have to talk about if that's what justice truly is. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe that justice is fully putting somebody behind bars and leaving them in this system that is inherently inhuman. And that does no work to rehabilitate this person or restore this person to any semblance of civic participation or or restore this person to society in any way. Right. I don't I don't really believe in that American justice. I think that that justice is operating on purely punitive measures and I don't know that a system like that is preventing people from committing crime and I don't know if a, a system like, you know, or not a system, but a structure like the prison industrial complex is ultimately working to give justice to everybody in society. And, and then some people will believe that, well, if you've committed a, a violent crime and if you've harmed somebody in society, you don't deserve to, you don't deserve to have the same access to justice as the person that you have harmed. Um, and I understand that because, because harm is, harm is harm. If, if somebody has harmed you and, and has wronged you in some way, it's very hard to get over that. And it's very hard to forgive that and, and want good for the person who has harmed you. Right. But um, when we're thinking about what that's doing to society as a whole, where we, where we believe that if somebody has harmed someone, the next step is to harm them. Mm. I'm not fully behind that. I don't know if that's for the benefit for everyone, for everyone, because I, I just think that if we harm people who harm people, all we have left is harm and, and we don't have healing. So, so if, if I'm operating under that logic, I don't really even, I don't even want police to be producing more people to be harmed by a system like the prison industrial complex. Like I don't want that. I don't want there to be, uh, if, if the prison industrial complex is the answer to somebody who has committed crime, and I stand against everything that the prison industrial complex does, then I don't want to see more police officers producing people to feed into that system. Right. So right. that is why, that's why I, you know, I don't stand with those two systems because in the end, it's just perpetuating harm and violence to everyone that's involved in that system. Because if you're, if you're a police officer or if you are a guard in a prison, you know, you're also might be um, complicit in the harm that's being done to people. And even if you're not the one experiencing the harm, you're doling it out. And that's harmful to you as well. Because right. I operate under the idea that if you give out harm, you're harming yourself because, yeah. you know, it, it's not, it's not inherently good for you to give harm to people. It, it's bad. Um, and it affects you psychologically and it makes you think that hurting people is okay, which it isn't. So yeah, that, that's, that's the type of, that's the type of ideas that I, that I go into when I'm thinking about these things. And, and that's why I'm, I'm more prone to say, well, let's get rid of policing because I don't even, I don't even find the system that policing 
I don't find the structure that policing is there for to be legitimate either. So if, if I don't think that, I, if I don't think that what you're doing is contributing to the, to the benefit of society, if, if you're putting people in jail and, and, and jail is just an inhumane place to be, then I don't find what you're doing to be helpful um, wow. at all. So, yeah. That's very interesting. Um, thank you for exploring that idea for me. Definitely something yeah. that I have to grapple with. And I think many listeners will probably have to grapple yeah. with that. But it is an interesting thought. And I, it would require a lot of creativity. Um, because, yeah, yeah, I think, and I'm in full agreement with how the police force um, and its structure has affected and disenfranchised the black community. And if I think, and I think you might agree, if the police force worked equally, if if the police force were just as present in wealthy white neighborhoods or middle class white neighborhoods, yeah. I'm not sure we'd be having this conversation. I think we w- it would no. be hard for us to frame it in the ways uh, that we have uh, explored to, uh, in this podcast, and right. and that's the problem. Yeah. Um, the the people who are quite yeah. gun ho for law and order at times usually don't see police in their communities or in their patrolling their neighborhoods yeah. and all that. Um, so it is an interesting yeah, and, and and it's. Uh, if police were operating in the same ways that they operate in poor black and brown communities in white communities I mean this problem would have been fixed ages ago yeah yeah they just yeah. would not have had that yeah yeah I so, agree I agree so yeah thank you Rebecca for uh, engaging us and next time um, we're going to explore um, The Fire Next Time by uh, James Baldwin Appreciate you coming on the podcast and hope to hear from you again soon. No problem.